Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Happy Friday, Food Junkies listeners. Today, Vera and I interviewed a colleague that we hope you'll hear us speak a lot more about as we move forward. In fact, we love what she's doing so much, Clarissa and I had her back for part two. So stay tuned for next week. Vera is going to go ahead and do the introduction, but before we get there, I just want to let you know what to listen for in this interview. Claire tells her personal story and her professional journey. She talks about the pushback she's received by colleagues when she's tried to address food addiction with her clients. Claire and Vera really get into some great discussions about type 2 dopamine receptors, exercise, restoring dopamine receptors, impulse control, medications, abstinence, subtyping, Claire's book and the chapters, how it's a handbook for professionals and researchers symptoms that can be more psychological versus physical, like nicotine, controversy that exists amongst eating disorder professionals and food addiction professionals, standards of care, obstacles to research, how she got the book published. She even gets a bit into TMS and the treatment of alcohol use disorder. Finally, we ask Claire what's next and our signature question. Take it away, Vera. All right. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. My name is Dr. Vera Tarman, and I am your co-host today, along with Molly Painshaw. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Claire Wilcox. Dr. Wilcox is a board-certified psychiatrist and addiction psychiatrist living in New Mexico. Dr. Wilcox is an associate professor at Mind Research Network in Albuquerque and is an adjunct faculty member of the University of New Mexico. Dr. Wilcox is also an NIH-funded researcher, and her research focuses on identifying the neural circuitry underlying addictive disorders, including overeating. She did also a residency in internal medicine, I just can't believe that, uh, prior to her work in psychiatry. In all of her clinical roles, she has seen countless people who've had medical and psychiatric problems related to addictions, including, in her opinion, addictions to food. Dr. Wilkos has published numerous academic articles and of interest to us at Food Junkies, her most recent academic work was an absolutely amazing textbook that I discovered to my delight called Food Addiction, Obesity, and Disorders of Overeating, an Evidence-Based Assessment and Clinical Guide. This is a comprehensive academic tome on food addiction that everyone studying food addiction must get. Food, food Junkies podcast is thrilled to showcase this hidden gem to our food addiction community. If that's not enough, you'll also find her writing in Psychology Today and the Santa Fe Reporter, and also she is an associate editor for the very prestigious New England Journal of Medicine. And in her spare time, I don't know how you have any spare time, Claire, but she spends the time hiking with her partner and her dog, Jojo, in the beautiful state of New Mexico. Also, of interest to us, she has her own recovery journey. Hello, Claire. Hi, Dr. Charman, and hi, Molly. So nice to be here, um, and thank you for that really nice introduction, too. It's nice to see you guys. I, um, yeah, uh, thanks. Okay, so uh, let's just jump right in. You kind of uh, sort of, I ended up with that tantalizing thing of you had your own recovery journey. So we always like to start with a bit of the personal thing so that we get to know our speaker. So tell us what you're willing to about your recovery from food or other addictions, and then how that has played out into your work. Sure. Yeah, I know. That's a great question. I do have my own recovery story. I ended up, I was a pretty big drinker in my younger years, a huge smoker. I smoked up to two packs a day of cigarettes and it was, you know, kind of a genetic loading and thought it was all pretty normal, pretty younger stuff. And then in my late twenties, it started sort of hitting me that drinking was not super normal anymore. And the Smoking, like I had been trained to quit since I was 15 and this, I could not quit. Like I was so addicted to cigarettes and I realized I have to quit drinking in order to quit smoking. So 
I did end up, you know, not uh, trying to quit drinking on my own. It didn't work. And I ended up going to AA in my late 20s and uh, loved, you know, well, you know, initially with like, God, these are weirdos, but pretty quickly kind of got hooked and have stayed connected with AA ever since. I have a very wonderful home group and stuff like that. So that was my first step. And I just learned so much about life and how to, you know, emotionally deal with the world and how to behave. And and so I got a lot of just sort of life skills through that process. And, you know, maybe about seven years later was finally able to quit smoking and ended up using Wellbutrin for that. That was a help. It helped me cut back on smoking. I didn't actually quit, but it helped me cut back to five a day from two packs a day. And then, and then ultimately, you know, one bright day I was able to quit. God knows why, you know? So, and then all throughout that, yeah, I had, you know, I've been, had eating stuff and was almost obese. I never quite hit obesity, but I was almost obese at the end of my drinking. And then, you know, kind of fascinatingly from a neurobiological perspective, I quit drinking and went from like pizza after the beer to, to pizza cookies, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) to cookie, you know, to like that. And I had my very, like, kind of kind of ritualistic love of certain foods and sugar, high sugar, high fat, and basically struggled with that in the same way that I struggled with cigarettes, quitting, starting, quitting, starting, get a couple months and then go back and not really sure I'm addicted. Maybe I can just have one, blah, blah, blah. And then finally, about 10 years ago, I was able to, and I had been, you know, I did like diet programs and books and did the like, you know, OA thing. And for whatever reason, I just haven't put with any particular OA meetings or groups. But about 10 years ago, I finally was able to stop eating most sugar. I still kept a little bit of maple syrup for some reason. I was able to do that and like all fruit jelly. So, but it was like a binary switch. Like I quit sugar and it was like, bam, craving done. You know, I'm like, this is amazing. Like, this is just like amazing. So that really was one convincing piece of evidence for me how like, much better life can be with sort of living in a food addiction model for me. And then I ended up, you know, in the, in the last 10 years was doing great. And then the last like three or four years, COVID, like the maple syrup became a big problem. (laughs) So flour has like really been rearing its head and, you know, I haven't gained like a ton of weight, but it's just the obsession and like not feeling like I'm sane. And so you know, actually this podcast in the last two months has catalyzed me to, I mean, today, knock on wood, not eat maple syrup, not eat alpha jelly, not eat flour at a restaurant here and there. So whatever, like, I love it. I love the, the podcast. It's been really helpful. So, and you know, how all this has played into my work is that, is that I think, you know, in general with addiction, one is when I'm seeing patients, I always have hope. I know that myself, I've put hundreds of all these things hundreds of times and, you know, feel really demoralized and like mad at myself. And the reality is you can get it. And it's, you know, for me, been a stepwise, slow, slow up and back process, but like it happens. And then you get to experience that relief of not being obsessed and being done with it. So so I, I always have hope. I think for me, things that have been really helpful as I've gone through this process are just like work-life boundaries. You know, I always, I try to always follow my bliss and do what really seems exciting to me. I have a lot of empathy for patients with addiction. I mean, all my patients, I just, I feel like, yep, I get it. I get it. You know, know, I I do not, I have no judgment, which I think a lot of people in medicine still have a lot of judgment about people that struggle with sticking with something. And then I think from lessons learned from food addiction is that I have experienced withdrawal from food. I have experienced addiction transfer, this concept that you can switch from one thing to another, you know, from, from alcohol to, to sugar. Like I've experienced that. I believe it. I've seen it in myself and we're all different. You know, every, I, 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 I did, I have not responded well to people being like, here's your food plan. I'm like, heck no, like I'm not doing that thing, but I have done really well being involved in my own recovery and, you know, worked well with people that have validated the, my own experience. And I think for me, you know, obviously you don't want to go too far because you're at rate and kind of waylay yourself, but sort of working with, when you're working with someone to sort of, and I do this with my patients, I, um, you know, I'm, I, I listen to them and I try to try to help them figure out what, what is your addict brain and what is like, you know, sort of better for yourself and your recovery and all that. So if I can just pin you down a little bit. So, so you've given your personal journey and then your professional journey. I mean, you started off in internal medicine. I, I my yeah my reading and then you moved into psychiatry sure. and, then, 
And now you do so much academic work. Are you actually seeing people clinically? And when and how do you uh, bring food addiction to that world? Sure. I mean, not enough to be completely honest. But yeah, so I, I, I initially did internal medicine, which wasn't a good fit for me. That's what catalyzed this like thing of like follow your bliss and do what. But I, I've always been like, okay, I'm not going to overwork and I'm always going to do the things that I love doing because that was a terrible three years. Mm. But then, because I didn't get, you know, acknowledge like this isn't a good fit for me in a way I should have. But I, you know, I went back into psychiatry, which is really where, you know, my heart was. And I really knew I wanted to be an addiction. So I did an addiction scholarship. And then I did research because of my curiosity in how the brain works and neuroscience and all that. Still, I'm doing some research. It's not as much of a focus now. But I feel like I have not had the opportunity to do much in the food addiction realm throughout these decades because it isn't really an established Mm. diagnosis. And I've been living in an academic, for the most part, world where you kind of follow the rules. You know, I actually did try to get some grants at one point. I, I didn't actually write any grant. I did some research. Like I did my first study was kind of a food deduction question. And I tried to get some grants. I talked to some program officers in the NIH and there was not a lot of enthusiasm for for the food addiction ideas that I was proposing. And then in the clinical realm, I worked in before you get to that, uh, just yeah. just uh, I'm I'm guessing that this whole area of nutritional psychiatry is relatively new and yeah. wasn't established enough for you to be able to piggyback onto that. Is that right? Yeah, and I think also part of it is where I was, which is New Mexico. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's a little isolated, and you know we don't have a big obesity researcher or nutritional psychiatry person here. We don't have. Yeah, you know, heart. Like if Gearheart was here in Albuquerque, I would be would have been all over her. But I wasn't. You know, she wasn't in Albuquerque. So yeah, and the nutritional psychiatry movement. I, I feel like I yeah, I just didn't really have like the mentor. Yeah. To validate what I was seeing quietly myself reading or in my own personal experience. Um, right. I'm guessing it's the next generation of psychiatrists, you know, where you are hoping to bring you out more into the fore. And, you know, Dr. Lemke and Dr. Edie, you know, once they start training the trainers, as it were, yes. we're, we're going to spread the word. Yeah. But anyway, you, you were going to uh, talk about your clinical. I interrupted you there. Yeah. So like you would ask how I was bringing food addiction into my career and you know clinically I, I mean as you as you know like writing wise I, it's a, like I wrote the textbook so that's one way that it has been able to come out but yeah I mean by the way I did submit that book proposal to several textbook companies like more established ones like the APA and stuff and they were not so I thought that was kind of fascinating too but in the clinical realm so I worked in an eating disorder clinic for about a year 2018 to 2019. And I told them at the beginning, you know, I put sugar, I'm fascinated by this food addiction concept. And they were like, they were like, what? Yeah. They were like, you know, we really don't talk about our own food plans, especially if they don't involve like not walking to the lights. And they were really, I mean, they're an amazing program. Like they're very comprehensive. They're the only, you know, well, not the only shop in town, but they're just a really good program for eating disorders treatment. If you have certain types of eating disorders, but working there, I just saw, you know, I saw a lot of patients that weren't getting well in that system. You know, I, I hate to say it so bluntly, but you know, there were just people that weren't, I don't think were getting well, uh, in my opinion and, and in their opinions. And I, it broke my heart and I did not do anything outside of the sort of confines of what I was expected to do. I didn't talk to them about food addiction and I kind of regret that, but I, you know, it was what I was hired to do. And then when I opened up my own private practice, some of those patients came with me and one patient did try a three month, no sugar, no flour deal. And she did great. She didn't want to do any 12 step work and she didn't have a, a therapist and she only was seeing me like once a month. And so she fell off that program and ended up dropping out. Um, so anyway, but I, you know, I, I could, that was my one kind of moment of like, oh, cool. Like it worked. So she had three months of abstinence and feeling pretty good. That seems you mentioned that you had a few, uh, or maybe that was when you were writing your book. Well, anyway, I know that in previous conversation, you said it was somewhere in there, the germ of the idea of a book came out. Yeah. 
So can you tell us sort of how, what birthed that process? So what happened was I was always kind of, I have a hoarding tendency when it comes to really cool research. And I was gathering interesting articles and I was throwing it in my folder, like food addiction, like obesity, binge eating disorder, just kept throwing them in because they were kind of fascinating. And so I ended up like at some point deciding that it was time to do something with it. And it was clearly going to be more than a review article. Like (laughs) there's just no question about that. So I thought, well, you know, I think I'm just going to try to write a book. So yeah, I know. And I felt like, you know, the world really needed something academic. So for me, I'm like really based in science. I don't believe anything I read in a popular book like right away. I want to be sure that we're the you know the person is coming from an academic um, perspective. And I thought this food addiction thing is fascinating, but like I don't know if I believe it. Like, is it real? And if it is real, like gonna, this going to trigger everybody with eating disorders, or is it going to be helpful for the world? So I just wanted to look at those questions myself. And so part of it was my own kind of curiosity, and I and I like to organize stuff. I don't know. So I just made this thing. <laughs> which basically organizes all these articles that I had to answer those questions. And and I feel like my key questions were, is food addiction a real thing? Like, is there biological evidence and what is it? Or biological or you know, clinical evidence? And then will it be helpful? And then what can we do about it, basically, if it is real? Which I've decided, I mean, there's just no question it is real in my mind. And, and, you know, for people who don't know about the book, I mean, how would you know it's we're, we're going to what we want people to know about this book. It is an academic tome of re- references, 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 research. I mean, it's it's like a, a review article extraordinaire. But and you've got lots of chapters on various issues. I think that along with Joan Eflin's book, anybody who's in the clinical world should have this on their it, it should be a reference book for food addiction, like as we try to make this an academic phenomena, like an acceptable concept. I mean, your book goes a long way towards showing that. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm glad. I mean, I want it to be useful. So that's wonderful to hear. Yeah. So you mentioned you had a bunch of articles that were really intriguing to you. So you found some of them, I heard you use the word fascinating, particularly fascinating. So what were some of the things that sort of there you are working in this general psychiatry and eating disorder world. What sort of stuck out at you and gave you some sort of aha moments as you carried along? I think in particular to the textbook, some of the things that really like, and, and in, in clinical realms, I mean, one of the articles that I bring up all the time, people is, well, I, I don't know if you know this one, but it was looking at the, when we go back up. So the type two dopamine receptor is yeah. this whole. There's this whole long story of the type two dopamine receptor in the world of addiction. Yeah. Well, tell, tell us about that because a, a lot yeah. of us know about dopamine, but not the specifics. So, give us a little bit more information. That sounds really interesting. Sure. So, the type two dopamine receptor is in, especially in the striatum, which means the dorsal and the ventral striatum is involved in a lot of things, but probably most importantly in, in impulse control and in patients with every type of substance use disorder and incidentally obesity and eating disorder, the density of that receptor in this sort of reward part of the brain and also the action part of the brain, the striatum is, is low. And it's just the consistent finding for everything. Obesity Cocaine addiction, gambling addiction, you know, all of those disorders have low type 2 dopamine receptors. And like I said, you know, you know, I think Dr. Volpo talks a little bit about that mediating reward in some of her articles, but I do think that D1 receptor, there's more evidence that it's the type 2, the type 1 dopamine receptor that's involved in reward. The type 2 receptor is really playing a bigger role in impulse control on a more global scale and movement. It has a lot to do with movement. And so, you know, and the, the idea, oh, and then there's this genetic polymorphism, the TAC1A polymorphism is affects the density of the type 2 dopamine receptors as well in striatum. And so certain variations of that receptor will predict a higher likelihood of disorders associated with impulse control and addiction. So there's all this, this whole backstory that that's 
may actually contribute to addiction. And certainly it's likely made worse by addiction. So you overuse, say, cocaine, you flood your brain with dopamine, the receptors for that molecule downregulate, they get less more so yeah. on the postsynaptic side of the, the synapse. So it's both the drug use and maybe a predisposing factor for addiction and leads to impulse control deficits. So my one of my favorite little studies is one that shows that in a group of people who were in residential treatment for methamphetamine use disorder, they were randomized to a high-intensity exercise intervention versus like standard of care and followed them, I forget, over six weeks or something like that. But anyway, at the end of this whole intervention, they measured you know, pre and post D2 receptor density, actually with type 2 and type 3 dopamine receptors. And for those that had been in the high-intensity exercise intervention, their dopamine receptor density was higher. So they had restored yeah. um, their dopamine receptors. And what I love about this, that study is, one, it just, like, throws psychiatry in the garbage. Like, what about all these medications that we give? Like, here, yeah. all we need to do is go out and exercise for six weeks. Like, Can, I just want to stop yeah. you for a second, just, just so that people understand the, the, the importance of what you're saying. Methamphetamine is probably the most, I call it a scorched earth policy for dopamine receptors. It's probably the most potent of the drugs focusing on dopamine and just demolishing like low low like absolutely and so you're saying that just exercise can help improve that's that's phenomenal because there's nothing that we can do absolutely yeah. nothing other than just hope that it gets better well now you're saying actually there is something we can do yeah i know it's beautiful and i think you know it's, it explains a lot of these studies that show that exercise can help maintain weight loss and maintain lifestyle changes because you know, it's not just about like the calories burned. It's about restoring the dopamine receptor density and helping people, you know, theoretically, they didn't actually define what the behavioral psychological process was that was improving in this group of individuals. And that would be the study that I would want to see is, you know, like, was it impulse control? Was it cue-induced craving? Like, what was actually better from pre When you mention impulse control, uh, the thing that immediately comes to mind is attention deficit disorder, and also that there's a paucity of uh, dopamine receptors as well. But what we do is we actually give a dopamine agonist. We give a stimulant, which yeah. I can't understand how that would help, because that would just be further causing downregulation. So I don't know. Uh, do you have any comments about that? Yeah, so I, I, I'm not like totally on my game right now, but to answer that question with complete confidence, but I, you know, I think what it has to do with is the dopamine system is incredibly complicated. There's the yes. striatum D1 and D2, so down here, and then there's the D1 up. and D2 up here, like do the opposite stuff, and it's just like okay. really confusing. So I think in the prefrontal cortex, dopamine agonists do something different. Yes, okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. That, act, that actually makes sense based on a, a previous podcaster who said that there was a, a distinction. Yeah. Okay, so anyway, where does sugar fit into this, this dopamine receptor issue? High intensity consumption of sugar causes higher release of dopamine. And so theoretically, that's going to result in greater downregulation of G2 receptors in the striatum, lower levels over time. And they have actually seen that in an associative level that people that have obesity or binge eating have low levels of G2 receptor in the striatum. And they look, you know, just like anybody else with a substance use disorder. And so my extrapolation of that exercise study would be, you know, I bet if you put a bunch of people in early recovery from food addiction into a high-intensity exercise program, mm-hmm. why wouldn't it boost their um, G2 receptors too and help them promote, you know, recovery in whatever way they're, they're you know, they're working on changing. So, yeah. Does that fit with our model of uh, certainly exercise and, and other interventions, but the essentiality of abstinence? Yeah, so that that's good. I, I don't know if it's related, except that so maybe we're maybe I'm taking a little bit of a leap here into a different topic. But kind of going back to your question of what were the coolest studies that you saw, I think some of the other coolest studies I thought. Yeah, was, yeah, we can go back to that for sure. Yeah, that showed that brain response to sugar. Um, is different in people who have over, you know, obesity and the brain response, especially to cues associated with sugary foods is different and heightened in people with obesity and struggle with overeating. But then over time, after they go on a weight loss program, I don't think they ever did an abstinence 
one, but they did like weight loss studies and things like that, that over time, that cue reactivity goes down. So they're higher, high, more reactive to food-related cues initially, and that over time, it gets better with weight loss. And not only that, that food cue reactivity initially predicts what happens you know, down the road, that those that have the higher Q reactivity are less likely to succeed in a diet program. So I think some very cool studies would be looking at how abstinence-based food plans would affect that, you know, reactivity as well. And is it about the calorie, you know, is it about the weight loss itself, or is it about the, like, the fact that those people that had restoration of their food Q reactivity maybe just, you know, didn't have sugar in their brains anymore, so it was, they were less reactive, I don't know, yeah. So all those neuroimaging studies that look at food yep. and food-induced um, brain reactivity are really fascinating to me. I think the other study that has always been extremely interesting is the, you guys have brought this up in your podcast a lot, but it's the David West signal noise paper, which was just so useful. And, you know, he's making the first step towards trying to help us as clinicians figure out for whom an abstinence-based food plan or a food addiction model is better and for whom it might actually be triggering. So I think it's an incredibly useful initial step. And, and what would be amazing is to, you know, I don't know if he's doing this now, but next step would be to sort of validate that paradigm and see if it really does predict who's going to respond better to what like intervention in the road, you know, down the road. Great. Anything else you want to add about other uh, studies that you found really interesting or aha moments? Yeah, I don't think so right now. Yeah. All right. Can you tell us then just a little bit more about the book itself? Like, what are some of the chapters and issues that you focus on? Yes. So the things that that I cover in the book are, I mean, basically the idea is it's a handbook for professionals Mm -hmm. um, and it's a handbook for researchers. So it's for people who either see patients, any types of professionals, clinicians of all kinds. And then also for people who are researching because it's like it's a great resource for writing a review article or any article, your background section of your article. Like you can just find the relevant studies in your area of interest pretty easily in it. Absolutely. Um, any student who wants to uh, do a topic, just get this book. It'll it'll definitely get you started. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then, and thank you again for your kind words about it. It's got, you know, a ton of references. I try to be pretty thorough, maybe a thousand, maybe more. I'm not sure. And I think some of the things that make it, unique from some of the other books are that a it's incredibly comprehensive b it brings in a lot of the neuroscience and neuroimaging so some of the you know there's there's been question like is food addiction real and and Mm -hmm. the clinical populations and human beings and you know i feel like there's just no question like if you look at all the neuroimaging that's been done yes like yes the brains are the similar are the same as people with substance use disorders like there's just no question about it. So I feel like that section really is different than... You know, one of the things, if I can just if I can just throw this out at you, one of the things that I often say when people say, well, you know, prove that it's real, you know, and I say, well, neuroimaging. And then I say, look, bottom line, at the end of the day, psychiatry in general, what have we got to substantiate this? We've got neuroimaging. We, we don't have the kind of research that we have, like, you know, show me the test. Like, we just don't have that. So just the understanding of what is anxiety, what is depression, what is attention deficit, we're using the very same tools we're using with food addiction. So if you buy those concepts, you got to buy this one. I know, I totally Really? Yeah, it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, some of the arguments against it don't make any sense at all, especially in light of the gambling disorder being in the DSM. Exactly. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. So, and, you know, I think processed food activates the neural circuitry in a similar manner as drugs use. And, you know, some people say, oh, well, it's just not, it's not as robust as cocaine. Well, you know, we don't, A, we don't know. Like those that have actual food addiction might have just the robust responses to dopamine or I don't know, we don't really know. And I think too that, that you know, what about alcohol? What about cigarettes? Like, yeah, we aren't like super intoxicated when we smoke cigarettes, but we all agree they're addictive. So what what is this, you know, need for to be like propane to be validated in the DSM. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Well, I actually think it's very similar to to tobacco in terms of uh, the the ubiquitousness of both. And also the the withdrawal absolutely exists, but it's not the same withdrawal as an alcohol withdrawal, but it exists. It's sort of like low key, but persistent Mm -hmm. and um, undermining for sure. 
Right. Like a psychological, like a lot of the symptoms are psychological for nicotine and food, whereas, you know, for alcohol, maybe they're a little more physical with the blood pressure and everything. So yeah, agreed. Yeah. Do you, do you think that, or is there anything more you want to say about the book? Oh yeah. So I do want to talk about also like the importance I, I place on the controversy that exists and what I really want to do is give lip service to, I think that's the right expression, the eating disorder professionals who are, you know, I, there's a lot of fear of food addiction and what abstinence-based food plans being out there might do to patients. Some patients with eating disorders are afraid that, you know, if it becomes acceptable to say, remove sugar from your diet, that that's going to trigger some of the people who are very restrictive in their eating, that it's going to trigger them and make them worse. And anorexia is highly dangerous and mortality is high and it's a really devastating illness. So I, I guess in the book, I really wanted to be agnostic in my approach to explore this question of, you know, what do we know about this sort of safety of the food addiction concept in the what is the data out there? So what I do in the book is, again, approach it with an agnostic perspective and try to answer that question with the data that is out there. And I think that, you know, David Wiss has done a lot of work in that area, but there's just a lot we don't know. And we don't know for whom this concept is going to be triggering. And we know that it might be triggering for some. And I think we just need to be cautious with whom we might recommend a, an abstinence-based food plan with whom we don't. And I, you know, I think that's another kind of message that I try to give in the book is like, yeah, it's not for everybody and, and everybody's, it's, we're all, we're all different. Yeah. So you, you really address that, that sort of the muddling issues between yes. the two diagnoses and yeah. you know the research behind that, which is, you know, that's where, that's where we're at today. You're giving a nice synopsis of the research of where we are today. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just to go back, you have your psychiatric history and, you know, we have medications for general addictions. Do you, I, I appreciate that we don't have research yet, clinical research, certainly no standards of care yet, but uh, do you see just from your own, whatever the word is, how you might use some of the medications or approaches that you use in general psychiatry for food addiction? I'm particularly interested in medications because yeah. we're yeah. sort of craving blockers. We don't really have anything. Totally. Yeah. Like yeah, totally. Yeah. No, I'm a, I'm a big supporter of MAT in my addiction treatment realm. I mean, I, which means, which means for um, people. Oh yes. Apologies. Uh, medication assisted treatment. So what that is in the addiction treatment realm is say somebody has an opioid use disorder. They may choose to go on Suboxone, which has some opioid agonist activity in it, or they may choose to go on Naltrexone, which has some only opioid antagonist activity, or they may choose to go on Methadone, which has all opioid agonist activity. That's just one example. And what it does is it supports people to stay away from the drug that is pulling them down so they can make better choices. It restores the health of their brain and, you know, in concert with other tools like therapy or you know 12-step programs or whatever else they're doing can really help catalyze that change and people stay on these medication assisted treatments for a long period of time we have them for alcohol we have many for alcohol we have a handful for stimulants there was just a really good study showing that a medication that has something similar to contrave so yeah. both Wellbutrin plus naltrexone was effective in, I think it was methamphetamine instead of cocaine. I forget. It was one of the two stimulants. So, you know, I'm a good supporter of that. And then, so as far as food addiction goes, you know, I think there is probably a big role for medications. And I think, oh, let me go back to in regular substance use disorders, we also treat withdrawal. So we help people through the early phases of withdrawal yeah. in order to, because that's the phase when people are more likely to just bail on this whole diet idea of getting right. and, and relapse. So we, you know, support people with medications to get them through the first couple of weeks so that they can, you know, not be in such pain and emotional pain or physical and make it to the next step and start learning them. So hoping to go. So I see medications as having an equally important role in food addiction treatment, both for withdrawal treatment, when and if we 
define, you know, what that withdrawal syndrome and food addiction looks like, and also in supporting people and what the sort of the relapse prevention medications or the MAT, this idea of being on a medication for a substance use disorder for years and years is not like that people are replacing their drug with another yeah. drug to get high. It's protecting their brains from making what, that rash, you know, maladaptive decisions. What, what kind of medications would that be for food addiction? For food addiction, the drugs that I like, I, I guess I'm hopeful for. I think one one easy, and again, I think it's going to depend on the person and comorbidity, like depression there with the anxiety, do they have PTSD? But, you know, my thought, my I would put my money on several. So one is just plain old Prozac. Anecdotally, I mean, SSRIs in general, uh, you know, are good for anxiety, but, you know, pretty anecdotally that Prozac is better than other ones for binge eating disorder. I don't know if it's true, but whatever, that would be one. Um, History for sure. Yeah. 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 And like the obsession, just like people just like sort of seem to not be as obsessed about food. Two would be topiramate and or zonisamide. So topiramate, I can't remember if it's FDA approved or no, it's not FDA approved for binge eating disorder, but there's still good studies. It um, has a really cool mechanism of action biochemically. It blocks AMPA receptors. It does other stuff too, but it blocks AMPA receptors, which is a glutamate receptor that is triggered when rats are exposed to a cue. So basically, they're exposed to a drug related cue. Their AMPA receptors get activated in their striatum. And then they go seek that drug. And if you block those AMPA receptors, okay. they don't go seek that drug. Okay, so, so it's an anti-craving drug. An anti-craving drug that works for a lot of other substances. Zonisamide. So um, oh, what were you going to say? I was just saying, what's the third one? Oh, there's more, actually. There's like probably four five. So zonisamide is understudied. It's like topiramate. There's one study in eating disorder, but okay. it has less side effects. And I really want people to study it. Like, I really want somebody to run a clinical trial of that one. I think naltrexone is not been hugely robust, but heck, it's in contrave. It's useful binge eating disorder. Apparently, contrave plus naltrexone is now effective in binge eating disorder to a little bit. You know, for the right person, it might be a godsend. Like, I've seen patients with alcohol use disorder. They went into AA over and over, keep relaxing, keep relaxing, finally get on Vivitrol, which is naltrexone, and they're like done. They don't drink anymore. Like for right. the right person, these medications really make a difference. And it might work for food. Right. It might work for food. And then this whole like semaglutide medication that's being is being yes. for... I was just gonna ask you about that. The, the yeah. There are the, the addiction world is all over that drug. I mean, it's being studied for nicotine. It's being studied for alcohol. This is like Mozambique or Manjaro or oh my God, what's the first one that came out? What's the uh, the brand name? Oh, I can't remember any brand names when it comes to that. Someone, uh, yeah, yeah, but it's a yeah, but it's a good. I mean, it sounds fascinating, and I'm excited to see what that's okay. going to show. All right, now you mentioned, uh, and I just wondered if you if it's even a possibility. I don't. I've, I've heard only in my readings transcranial magnetic stimulation. What right. is that, and is there any role for that? That that's just a. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating, isn't it? So, have you you haven't used it at all in your treatment? No, do you no, guys have that in Canada? They do it in Canada. I, I don't know. Okay. Um, but I'm not a psych- I'm not a psychiatrist in a hospital, so and yeah. I'm not a psychiatrist, and I don't work in hospitals, and I guess that that's where you see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a handful. It's actually all over the U.S. They're like opening up these satellite TMS clinics, like they're these big corporations that... Can you tell us what it is? Yes, sure, sure, sure. So it's basically a coil is applied to the brain and a magnet is activated in this coil and it causes electricity to, you know, transmute through the brain tissue. It can't go that deep. It like, it only can go a certain number of centimeters into the brain. But it basically causes electrical stimulation. And what they're seeing, it's now an FDA-approved treatment for major depressive disorder. And that's what, you know, sort of being used as a specific uh, protocol. And it is stimulating the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And people go in for 20 minutes every day for six weeks, five days a week. And that's the sort of standard protocol. It's not painful. It can increase the seizure risk slightly, but it's less of an increase in risk than SSRIs, which are the medications we prescribe for depression. Or ECG. 
Yeah. Or, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. And you don't lose consciousness. You know, so it's not like you see chi or you yeah. lose consciousness. And it's fairly, it's pretty safe. You don't have to take a medication into your system. Is there a role for it in addiction? Yes. So there's growing interest in that. So it's only, it's FDA approved, I think, for OCD and depression right now. I can't remember if there are other diagnoses for OCD approved, but there's a lot of studies recently a meta-analysis and addiction, which included, by the way, people with obesity and overeating sort of issues. So, so the meta-analysis that brought together all these different diagnoses, but using protocols similar, but not exactly the same to the depression protocol, stimulating that left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex will reduce cravings and improve, mm. it seems, impulse control in a lot of these disorders. So I think there's hope that, the, you know, the reason I, I think it's important to mention here for the world is that, you know, if people have major depressive disorder and they are not responding to their, because it's only approved for treatment, so they have to have tried several medications. But if the medication that they've tried is not helping them with their major depressive disorder, they can ask their psychiatrist or maybe primary care doctor to refer them for transcranial magnetic stimulation. Insurance will cover it. And, you know, so if somebody, they, they probably couldn't get anyone to refer them for an addiction yet, but you know what, it might have gotten approved for smoking. Anyway, there's been more data coming out with smoking too, but they could probably get it approved by their insurance for depression. So if somebody has comorbid major depressive disorder plus some addiction and their provider feels safe, you know, maybe it's going to kill two birds with one stone and take yeah. care of a couple issues and help with the cravings. So and then down the road, maybe it's yeah. going to not be useful. That's what I was thinking, maybe down the road. Okay, so speaking of things down the road, why is it that, or I mean, you've written a, a nice tome basically on the research as it stands today. How can we get people to be more willing to do more research? Like what's yeah. the obstacle there? Or is there an obstacle? Are things, is the tide changing? I mean, I think the obstacles are several fold. One, I haven't seen it changing, but I haven't applied for a grant in several years. So I, I'm not exactly sure if they're opening things up a little bit more. But, you know, I don't know any of my colleagues that believe in or talk about food addiction. So I'm a little worried it's kind of a long way down the road. And I, I think it's going to, you know, take what you guys are doing. This bottom up approach is yes. massively important. I think people like Dr. Gearhart, Dr. Schulte, who are kind of in the middle of it all, they're going to make a big difference. I mean, they're, the people on your show are just so, like, I mean, there's so many well-established academic or non-academic or whatever, but just, like, highly intelligent, wonderful, well-spoken people. Like, how could this not make an impact? You know what I mean? So I feel like these efforts, and then the most important thing, though, is that it get in the GSM. I mean, once it's in the DSM, then money can be funneled to it if, if NIDA decides that it's abuse. But I mean, right now, there's no diagnosis. It just makes it really, you can't apply for a grant to study something for which there's no diagnosis, at least that I'm aware of. I, I, I'm not sure how Dr. Schulte is, for example, getting her funding, but it's, you know, you kind of have to, what I've done in my little bit of trying is just tie it onto other studies. And I think that might be what some people are doing. Like you get yeah. a grant for, I don't know, obesity, and then you, study your food addiction subpopulation or something like yeah, that. Yeah, or eating disorder. And then, you know, you, I think there was some thought about taking a binge eating disorder subcategory of food addiction. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. it's frustrating, you know, it is, or, you know, studying your substance use disorder patients that also have a food addiction on top of theirs. Yeah. You know, so I think, how, how did you get your book published then? Like, like, that's a major publisher, Springer. So there you are coming up with a book, like, I struggled with this like immensely to, to get, get a publisher interested because they're interested in the bottom line. They're yeah. interested in will the book sell? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think Springer, I just I sent it out to academic presses yeah. only. And um, maybe they have a higher tolerance to. Yeah. Yeah. I think Springer is more academic only. And, you know, I guess the textbooks are notorious for not making any money at all. So like definitely you probably, I bet, I would bet like this is something that's you made like way more money than I did. I feel about. And I don't know, like I did, like I said, I sent it out to several of the more mainstream ones, the more psychiatry based and they were just not not interested yeah well i mean kudos to you to get your foot in the door because i think you're right it's a bottom-up approach and it's people like you with the credentials then it's people like us at food junkies that are sort of 
corral, corralling the credentials, and then just the regular people saying, "Come on, we want to, we want to, we want to have something done here." So before I move on to sort of closing it us up, is there anything else you can say about the book? Because it's such a fabulous book. Why why should somebody read this? I'm telling people you have to read it. I mean, I think it's everything you want to know about food addiction in one place, really condensed down into academic language. So like, I mean, even if you want to just know about, I don't know, public health, for example, I have a very small section of public health, but like I've cited, I don't know, 20 articles in the public health, like that talk about public health and the food addiction realm. So like, it's a good place to start. And then you can explore these subtopics within the area. So it's a good reference guide. And I feel like too, like I said, I think the neuroimaging piece is like chapter eight, or I think is what it is. So it's like the neuroimaging of food addiction piece is kind of, I feel like kind of proud of that chapter. So I'm like, I pulled it all together and we've organized the studies in a certain rational way and it felt pretty good. So, yeah. Amazing. So Claire, we're really curious to know what's next. The textbook exists. You're really into research. You like writing. Mm. Fill us in. Yeah. So in a non-food addiction realm, so I'll just get this one off the list. We still have a study ongoing at the Mind Research Network, which was it's using transcranial magnetic stimulation oh. for alcohol use disorder. And I am peripherally involved as the clinician. It's a grant that I got, and then I passed it off to my colleague, Dr. How to run the grant. And we're almost done with recruitment, and we're going to analyze the data and see basically applying the transcranial magnetic stimulation to the cerebellum based on preliminary data that showed that high anxiety, depression, and craving were associated with high activity in the cerebellum during a certain fMRI task. So we're applying this like transcranial magnetic stimulation to dampen that activity to see if that does anything to their craving. So that's exciting, I think. And we'll hopefully know answers to that in the next six months. And again, how does that apply to food addiction? Well, it's all, you know, if addiction is the same, maybe, who, who knows, maybe it could apply down the road. So the other stuff that I'm working on, so one is I'm working on a book with you guys, and I, I'm having so much fun. We're going to make a book out of the podcast. And mm. I just, again, I'm just like overwhelmed and like I'm, I'm emotive, I'm excited about how much great stuff is on your podcast. So we're going to make a book out of it that could be digestible in a, a shorter setting and kind of organize some of the key tidbits. I mean, there's so many key tidbits. I don't know how we're going to put it all in there, but we're writing the book proposal right now. And I'm working on another book proposal. I'm trying to write more. And I have some fiction projects. I'm actually oh my God. writing fiction too, because I just am really liking the writing. So I gave up my private practice. I had a small private practice. I decided to move on from fiction care for now to make space. And um, I work for an insurance company to make some money, but I'm going to try to go even more part-time than I am and just really focus on on the writing. Science, you know, kind of these book projects, sort of more medicine-y and then also fiction and just um, kind of see what takes off. Because it's what I love to do. It's really like I lose, I lose myself in you know, writing. I have yeah. a really good time and researching and read, you know, reading and writing. I love writing. your writing is really quite excellent. Oh, I mean, that's you, you have the capacity to do the academic, like I said, the tone that's necessary. But you know, when I asked you to fashion the proposal, because I see the proposal for um, our Food Junkies podcast is almost like a the people have spoken, you mm-hmm. know, that bottoms up, and you were able to take that academic stuff and really make it into readable prose. So I'm really looking forward to your abilities with this thing. So folks who are listening, be aware this is the team, potentially a book for the Food Junkies podcast. But all right. So Molly, do you want to close us off there? Yeah, sure. Claire, as you probably know, we have a signature question that we'd like to ask all of our guests. And so we would love to know if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about food addiction, what would it be? I love this question and I just have so many like answers to it, but I think I'll I'll tell you a few of them. One is that Mm -hmm. you are not crazy. So when I have struggled with this off and on, you know, I'm an intelligent person. Why has this thing got me down? What is wrong with me? Right. It's my fault. Like I should be able to eat like half a piece of cake. Like what's going on with this? So I'm not crazy. I have a biological brain. That's a biological problem. I have a, like, just like, you know, cancer or whatever. Like, it's just my brain doesn't work. And there's a treatment, which is for me has been abstinence. So that is number one. Including no honey. And was that honey that you said? 
Yeah, yeah, the ones that were in there were like maple syrup and yeah, maple syrup, um, all fruit jelly. Which honestly, like for five years, I could eat them like just in little amounts. I think it was just you know, whatever. I just hadn't learned it yet, but then I learned it. I learned how to make everything bad. <laughs> and then you know, I think the other thing is when I first was in recovery and started going to 12-step meetings. You know, I'm in this academic, like, science world, and it's all about, like, biology. I really struggled with that, and I thought there's something shameful about the fact that I go to 12-step meetings, and I was just so conflicted because on the one hand, I just read so much wisdom and loveliness and hope and, I mean, just, and I did in many ways, like, grow up emotionally in the 12-step programs like they talk about. And, you know, but at the same time, I was feeling like, you know, this is bad. Like, I can't tell anybody about this. This is like Mm -hmm. a secret, dark part of my life. And so what I would tell myself is that 12-step programs are awesome and there's nothing to be ashamed about. They're, you know, very helpful for many people. Not for everybody. I certainly am not like a blanket. Like, everybody needs to be in 12-step programs person. I think it doesn't fit for everybody. But for me, you know, AA, at least my AA home group is still, I know, I love those people. They're just wonderful. You know, it's really useful tool and sort of touchstone for me. So, oh, and then I, oh, the third one I think would be that it's not about the weight loss. That's not where I'm going to find my peace. It's about, you know, inner, inner peace is the goal. And that really is something I've settled in on. It was it was always about the weight, and until probably the last I don't know maybe five years or so, it's really transformed into something that's you know I've just sort of gotten comfortable like with body image stuff and just like yeah, I am who I am, you know, and like just that. So telling myself that it's you should be seeking inner peace. That's your primary goal. So. Right on, freedom from obsession. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you, Claire, so much for, I mean, you know, we're introducing a a new person into our community. Welcome. We're so happy that you're there. Your book is fabulous. Thank you so much for sharing your story and your Thank you. You guys are so wonderful. I'm just really, really, really grateful for what you've created with this podcast and your program and everything. It's going to change so many people's lives. I'm sure it already has. So thank you for everything. You're, as I've told you before, you're just amazing interviewers. You're incredibly skilled at this. So, thank you. Right? Did you know you were going to be so good at this? We just got a great team. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Claire. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group. I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.